Our scripture reading this evening comes from Matthew, chapter 9, verses 18 to 34. While Jesus was saying this, a ruler came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, If only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. When Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd, he said, Go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith will it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Amen. Please be seated. If you look up the word faith on the online Oxford Dictionary, which I suspect is not to be confused with the Oxford English Dictionary, you get two definitions of the word faith. One is strong belief in the doctrines of religion based on spiritual conviction rather than proof. We could have an interesting discussion about the validity of that definition, about what doctrines are essential to Christianity and whether they're based on conviction rather than proof or not. I looked up doctrines of Christianity on the web and one website succinctly stated that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, was resurrected and thereby offers salvation to all who will receive him in faith. I liked that. Keeps it simple. You don't get bogged down in stuff about the Trinity. One God being Father, Son and Holy Spirit or how Jesus is somehow fully human and fully God at the same time. You can't help feeling that these doctrines take something simple and make it complicated. 
And yet the trouble is that Christian orthodoxy is bound up entirely and completely with a correct understanding of God being three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ being fully God and fully human. Because the more you try and understand what it's about, the more complicated it gets. Truth is like that sometimes. And then you start to pick at what it means. Well, Jesus died for our sins. How does that work? And what does it mean for us to be saved? And questions like this will keep me happily occupied throughout my sabbatical after Easter. And one of the problems with the definition of faith in terms of doctrines we believe in is getting Christians to agree on what we believe in. We have different understandings. What we mean when we talk about the Bible being God's word and inspired. Or what precisely happens when we die. Or how did God make the world. Or what does the Holy Spirit do. Or or what's the true church and, and how do we tell whether someone is a real Christian or not. And the list of potential disagreements goes on and on. I remember having a discussion with someone once who said, why can't Christians just agree on what they believe? I said, well, it's it's very difficult. The earliest and simplest statement of faith has five elements corresponding to the five loaves Jesus used to feed the 5,000. It's found in an early document entitled The Epistle of the Apostles. And the five things are, we believe in one, the Father, the ruler of the entire world, two, in Jesus Christ our Saviour, three, in the Holy Spirit, the Paraclete, four, in the Holy Church, and five, in the forgiveness of sins. And the person I was talking to said, why is the church there? Christians do like to disagree on matters of doctrine. You'll have heard the story of the man who was rescued after spending many years marooned on the desert island, and he showed his rescuers the church he built. And they said, that's strange. We're sure we saw another church on the other side of the island. He said, yes, I left that one because I didn't agree with the teaching there. So what about the other definition of faith offered by the online Oxford Dictionary? It's complete trust in someone or something. And if you were to kind of try and get to the core of what the Christian faith is really about, it is complete trust in Jesus Christ. And what saves us is not so much what we believe about him as in our readiness to put our whole trust in him. Being able to tick a box to show that you can give mental assent to this or that statement of faith, or to say a creed without crossing your fingers behind your back, that doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is that you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ. It is that personal trust that makes the difference. What counts is not how much you understand about who Jesus really is. What counts is the extent to which you are prepared to stake your life on him. Clearly, the more you understand about Jesus, the better placed you are to trust him. But you can have a PhD in theology and have an in-depth understanding of every facet of the personal work of Christ. But unless it's personal, unless he is my saviour, And my Lord, it remains in the realm of theoretical knowledge rather than saving faith. At its core, the Christian faith is not so much about what you believe, it's about who 
you trust. And that's Jesus. Matthew places a lot of emphasis on faith in his gospel, and this comes out quite clearly in our reading tonight. The importance of faith is particularly emphasized in the two blind men who follow Jesus, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. I can't help feeling that Jesus didn't make it easy for them, you know. You get the clear impression they've been following him along the street for some way, calling out after him. No easy task for blind men to walk after someone who's walking away from him and keep calling out to him. And then Jesus goes indoors. He goes in the house and shuts the door. So they have to figure out which house it is he went in and find the door and get inside and then say again, son of David, have mercy on us. They get 10 out of 10 for persistence and perseverance before they finally get to meet Jesus face to face and he says to them, do you believe that I can do this? And when they say yes, he touches their eyes and says, then according to your faith, will it be done to you? And their sight is restored because they believed. Their faith made all the difference. Why was their faith so potent, so powerful? Their sight wasn't restored because their faith was exceptionally strong, although they did show a great deal of faith in terms of not giving up and continuing to chase after Jesus and finding where he was. What restored their sight was the fact that they put their faith in one who had the power to restore their sight. The power and the authority belonged to Jesus. Faith made a difference because they put their faith in one who could make a difference for them. It's not the strength, the power of faith by itself that does something. It is who you put your trust in. The woman, too, is healed on the basis of her faith. She says nothing at all to Jesus. Her faith is expressed in the act of reaching out and touching the edge of his cloak. That sounds suspiciously like superstition to those of us who are concerned with maintaining a proper degree of orthodoxy about how these things ought to work. Yet she reached out to touch Jesus' cloak because she thought, if only I touch his garments, I will be healed. And healed she is. Not because Jesus' garment held any magical properties, but because, as Jesus says to her, your faith has healed you. And again, this faith is in Jesus. She touched the cloak and thought she would be healed because Jesus was wearing the cloak. And touching the garment was an expression of her inner faith. A faith that wasn't expressed in words, in her case, but a, strong, a faith that was strong enough to send her out into a crowded street, a place where she had no business to belong, a place where she was not welcome on account of her illness. But such was her trust that Jesus could make a difference to her, that she was prepared to seek him out and make a grab for the edge of his cloak as he passed her by. Simply believing if I touch something he's wearing, that's all that's necessary for me to be healed. 
And all this happens, this is a subplot, as Jesus is on his way to the home of a synagogue ruler who has just asked Jesus to come and lay his hands on his daughter. There's no explicit mention of faith on this synagogue ruler's part, and there doesn't need to be. The level of his trust in Jesus is apparent by the amazing degree of confidence he has that even though his daughter has just died, yet if Jesus will come and lay his hands on her, that's all that's necessary, and she will live again. Though Matthew doesn't mention faith in the context of this ruler, he heightens the faith of the man in his retelling of the story. If you remember Mark's version, some people think Mark does a far better job of telling the story because in Mark's version, that the man comes to Jesus and says, come and heal my daughter, she is seriously ill. And Jesus is on his way and then he stops and takes all this time talking to the woman and she touches his cloak and he doesn't let it go. He stops and says, someone touched me, I felt power go out from me, who is it? And there's always delay as she's identified and then there's discussion and he says, your faith has healed her. He turns around to go on and the message comes to the synagogue ruler, your daughter has died. And that sense of tragedy and disaster If Jesus hadn't taken all that time over this woman, who could have waited a little bit longer, surely, his daughter would still have been alive. Matthew cuts all that out, ruthlessly. He always abbreviates Mark's stories. On this kind, people feel he's kind of been a little bit unkind to Mark's story because it's so much less dramatic, in a sense. All that sense of what's going to happen is gone because the daughter is dead from the word go. Yet in Matthew's telling of the story, it's the, the, the faith of the synagogue ruler that is really heightened because he believes, even though in Matthew's version he knows his daughter has died already, he believes all that's necessary is for Jesus to come and lay his hands on her and she will be raised up again. With the blind man then, with the woman, he stands out as another shining example of faith in Jesus. There's no mention of the last man in our story having any faith. He's been struck dumb by some kind of demon that his friends bring him in to see Jesus just as the two men who've been cured of their blindness are on their way out. And Matthew just says that once the demon had been driven out, the dumb man spoke again, much to everyone's amazement. And of the five people who encountered Jesus in our reading, two blind men, the woman, the synagogue ruler, this is the fifth man and he is the most helpless. The synagogue ruler is the most articulate and the most desperate. His daughter has died. The woman who touches Jesus' cloak has no words to say, but after suffering for 12 years, she's pretty desperate as well. I wonder whether the two men, two blind men, felt a bit desperate when they heard Jesus going into a house and the sound of his voice disappearing, wondering whether he had any time for them at all, but they didn't give up calling out to Jesus to heal them. This man is helpless. He has no words to say, because he's been struck dumb. He can't even approach Jesus of his own volition. Others have to bring him. You look in vain for any sign of faith on his part. Yet Jesus sets him free. Perhaps because he is so helpless. It's not necessarily faith alone that made all the difference to the others. It was Jesus who made the difference. And it was because Jesus could make the difference 
that they put their faith in him. Matthew, in his telling of these stories, points us towards the second definition of faith as having trust in someone. In this passage from his gospel, he shows us examples of those whose lives were transformed because they trusted Jesus. And it's that kind of trust in Jesus that Matthew uh, wants to develop in people like us who read his gospel. He sets out who Jesus is and what he can do because he wants us to put our trust in him. That's why he gives us examples of the kind of difference that trusting in Jesus can make. We shouldn't think of faith as some kind of currency that we can use when we engage in prayerful transactions with Jesus. If I come to him with the right words that express the right kind of faith, I can get him to do what I want. That is not what faith is about. That is not how prayer works. Faith is not a means to securing the answers to our prayers. Matthew gives us examples of the difference faith in Jesus can make because he wants us to be people who put our faith in Jesus as well. Because it is in Jesus that we encounter God. It is through Jesus that our sins are forgiven. It is when we put our trust in him that God takes charge of our lives. He alone is the one who guarantees us safe passage through death and out the other side into eternal life. He alone brings the assurance of complete forgiveness for our past, even when we don't deserve it. Being a Christian is all about having a personal faith in Jesus. A trust that means, yes, we are prepared to come to him in prayer and trust him for our needs, but a trust that actually goes deeper even than that. It's a trust that doesn't give up, even when it seems that our prayers are not being answered as we might have hoped or expected. Because Jesus isn't just there to answer our prayers. He is there to be Lord of our lives. And that means trusting him even when our prayers seem to go unanswered. Trusting him enough to govern who we are and direct what we will be because he is Lord. Because he is God. Because when we trust him, our lives and the outcome of our lives are in his hands. Because in the words of that simple definition of the Christian faith, he, Jesus, died for your sins, was buried, was resurrected, and thereby offers salvation to you if you will receive him in faith. And so, as Jesus said, according to your faith, will it be done to you. Let's pray.
Lord, we're all on a journey towards understanding who you really are. Thank you that you accept us, whatever our level of understanding. Lord, we're all at different stages of being able to trust you. Thank you that you said that faith the size of a grain of mustard seed could make all the difference. Bring us to that place of being able to trust you enough to say, Be my Lord. Take charge of who I am and what I will be. I trust you with my life and its outcome. So Lord, in faith we ask that you would forgive us what is past. Accept us for the people that we are and direct who we shall be as we give our lives to you in faith and in trust because you are our Saviour, our Lord and our God. And you died and rose again to save us. Amen.